After Henry Jacob Bigelow published the results of Morton's ether anesthesia demonstration in the New England Journal of Medicine, the practice of using etherization was quickly adopted elsewhere. The news of Ether Day drifted across the Atlantic to Europe, changing surgery for thousands of people. The innovation of anesthesia sparked a renaissance in medicine that led to rapid changes in surgery, from new tools for administering anesthesia to new techniques for preparing patients for their surgeries. Every element of surgery appeared ready for a change in the eyes of those innovators and pioneers. Even the use of ether as the anesthetic of choice was not immune. And the most ambitious of these trailblazers was James Young Simpson. Simpson was an obstetrician. In January of 1847, he was appointed to be one of Queen Victoria's surgeons. And by that time, he had already become consumed by the potential of inhalational anesthesia. He started using ether anesthesia to relieve pain during childbirth just weeks after the first demonstrations of it in London. But Simpson was unique in the early days of anesthesia use. As the rest of the world marveled at the success of ether anesthesia, he was determined to find its alternative. His reasons varied. He worried that ether was too smelly, that too much was needed to achieve the desired sedation, that it was too flammable in a time when candlelight was a common necessity for surgery. So Simpson set out to personally test a wide array of inhalational chemical agents in hopes of finding this new and better form of anesthesia. Every Thursday evening, beginning in the summer of 1847, Simpson and his fellow investigators would meet at his home to sit around his dining room table and inhale different chemical agents, all in the effort to find ether's replacement. I've selected for experiment and have inhaled several chemical liquids of a more fragrant or agreeable odor, such as the chloride of hydrocarbon, acetone, nitrate of oxide of ethyl, benzene, the vapor of iodoform, etc. On Thursday, November 4th, 1847, more than a year after Morton's ether anesthesia demonstration at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Simpson found the precise chemical compound he was looking for in the form of hydrogen, carbon, and chlorine better known as chloroform. This discovery came after Simpson awoke from inhaling the compound to find himself lying under his dining room table with one of his colleagues snoring loudly nearby and another laying on his back, swinging his legs and feet violently in the air, apparently trying to destroy the dining room table above his head. This is far better and stronger than either. And in many ways, he was right. Chloroform was not flammable. It was inexpensive to produce. And most importantly, it was very potent in small amounts, making the induction of anesthesia much quicker than ether. In his triumph, Simpson boasted about this new discovery and championed its use throughout England. By November 15th, Simpson had recorded 50 cases with the use of chloroform. Within weeks of his unusual dinner party, Simpson presented his findings to the Edinburgh Medical Chirurgical Society in his talk entitled, A New Anesthetic Agent, More Efficient 
than sulfuric ether. Simpson felt that chloroform, or chlory as he affectionately referred to it, was the solution to all the ills of ether. But there was one other critical difference between ether and chloroform. Chlory was extremely lethal. Discover breakthrough technology with Massimo Rainbow Pulse Cooximetry, featuring SPHB non-invasive continuous hemoglobin monitoring and PVI, a non-invasive dynamic indicator of fluid responsiveness. The Rainbow Pulse Cooximetry platform is designed to help support blood and fluid management initiatives without additional equipment or setup. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. Hannah Greener was a 15-year-old girl who lived near Newcastle, England in 1847. Greener's life was not an easy one, partly because she was considered to be illegitimate, and partly because she suffered from a great deal of pain in both feet. In an effort to relieve her pain, she had to undergo procedures to remove the toenails on her big toes. In the fall of 1847, she was scheduled for a surgery on one of her toes. She went to the Newcastle-upon-Tyne Infirmary and was given ether only a year after its original demonstration in Boston. The procedure was a success. Greener felt no pain, but she did complain about feeling a heaviness in her head after the operation. She was scheduled for the second surgery on Friday, January 28, 1848, to remove the toenail on her other foot. The doctor, Thomas Nathaniel Megason, came to Greener's home to perform the procedure. The young patient was afraid. Greener did not want to be given another dose of ether. So Megason decided to use a new anesthetic agent for this procedure. In an effort to comfort the crying girl, he placed a chair next to the fire and reassured her as she sat down, still crying. Everything will be quite all right. Megason prepared a handkerchief and added a teaspoon of chloroform to it. Here. This should help calm your worries. He carefully placed the soaked cloth over Greener's mouth and nose. Hannah, put your hands on your knees and breathe quietly. Greener did as Megason told her, and after a few moments of breathing in the vapors of the chloroform-drenched handkerchief, the compound began to take effect. I told her to draw her breath naturally, which she did. In about half a minute, I observed the muscles of her arm to become rigid, and her breathing a little quickened, but not stertorous. I had my hand on her pulse, which was natural, until the muscles became rigid. Megason believed that Greener was sufficiently sedated and told his assistant to begin the procedure. As a surgical blade cut into her toe, she jerked her foot. Megason, thinking the chloroform had not worked, stopped the incision, and checked on young Greener's condition. 
He opened her eyes and found that they were congested, and she was losing color in her face and lips. He tried to wake her from the sedation. He splashed water on her face. She barely responded. He tried giving her a sip of brandy. She barely swallowed any of it. Megasin turned finally to the age-old medical practice of bloodletting. He cut into her arm, then her neck. She was no longer responsive at all. He checked for her pulse one last time. Hannah Greener was dead. The whole process of inhalation, operation, venesection, and death did not occupy more than two minutes. Almost immediately after Megasin reported Greener's death, a formal investigation was opened to determine the true cause of her unexpected and untimely death. Sir John Fife, a surgeon at the Newcastle-upon-Tyne Infirmary, conducted a postmortem. He found that Greener's lungs were congested, a newly identified side effect of this very newly discovered anesthetic. Fife presented his findings to a jury seeking to put to rest the true cause of Greener's death. No human foresight, no human knowledge, no degree of science could have forewarned any man against the use of chloroform in this case. The argument was convincing. The jury determined that Hannah Greener died of congestion of the lung produced by chloroform. And while Megasin was found to not be at fault, the verdict from the jury had a much more telling implication for the budding specialty of anesthesiology. Hannah Greener became the first person in history to be officially declared dead by chloroform anesthesia. But she would not be the last. The triumphant early days of anesthesia were about to give way to an era of almost inconceivable patient death. Breakthrough Technology, Breakthrough Outcomes, a key study conducted at CHU Limoges Hospital in France demonstrated the value of implementing a hospital-wide, goal-directed therapy protocol for blood and fluid management using the Massimo Rainbow Pulse Cooximetry platform, showing a 33% reduction in 30-day post-surgical mortality. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. Welcome to the second episode of this season of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist. We began this journey by retelling the story of the very beginning of anesthesia use in surgery, with the added benefit of hindsight and almost two centuries of clinical research advances. The story of ether anesthesia and chloroform are intertwined by timing and use, but their stories diverge considerably in those early years because of the striking ease of overdosing a patient with chloroform. For over a year, anesthesia providers used ether to ease pain in surgery. It might have seemed like a golden age in medicine was beginning for them. And Hannah Greener's death from the use of chloroform anesthesia 
must have been a heavy dose of reality to the serious and deadly side effects of this new practice. This season of the Aetheris is about revisiting the history of the specialty of anesthesiology and reimagining what happened in those early days based on what we know today. And we can't tell that story properly without diving into the dangers of the use of anesthesia. It is perhaps the most important piece of knowledge that we possess now, that those early pioneers were not sufficiently aware of at the time. So in this episode, we'll find out just how much innovators like Morton and Simpson really knew about how ether and chloroform affect a person's body and brain. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, Season 3, Episode 2, The Dreadful Discovery of Chloroform, sponsored by Massimo and Medtronic. Simpson was a man eager to succeed in his calling to be an obstetrician. Though he might not have been aware of the very real danger of inhaling chloroform, he still risked his life in the pursuit of finding a better alternative to ether. In fact, like so many of his contemporaries, he was fond of self-experimentation, usually at night, aided exclusively by candlelight and self-determination. Simpson was not alone in his belief that the best available option was just past the horizon, though. In just a few short years, nearly half a dozen individuals had presented major scientific contributions to this new medical discipline. Long, Morton, Warren, Bigelow, and now Simpson. Yet somehow the discovery of these drugs, ether, chloroform, and even nitrous oxide, did not turn out to be a simple success. That is likely because of just how much those innovators didn't know about the world-changing discoveries they were making. But once those revelations were shared with the world, there was no turning back. When the story of ether, of course, migrated across um, the Atlantic, it took off around the world literally within two or three months. I mean, it was quite amazing. It was like a fire that scorched across uh, Europe and down into Africa and across to Australia uh, by all records. The first anesthetic was administered in 1846 of October. By July 1847, the first anesthetic was already administered in South Africa as an example. So, you know, it spread like wildfire. This is Dr. Berend Metz again. And the speed of adoption for ether anesthesia was remarkable even by today's standards. The only thing more amazing than the rapid adoption of ether, though, is how quickly Simpson was able to find an alternative to it. James Young Simpson uh, was not enamored with ether. There were a few problems with ether. It was invariably nausea-provoking. People puked all over the place. It was explosive. It smelled terribly. And worst of all, it was invented in the United States by a lowly dentist. Of course, Simpson was an accomplished physician, and he was motivated to find the British alternative to ether. He was also immediately successful, and surgeons all across England started using Simpson's chloroform as their choice anesthetic. But there were some concerns that meant ether was still a common choice for surgery. But it wasn't uniform uh, acceptance. Um, 
there, there was a very accomplished surgeon in France, Valpo, and he said, ether is wonderful and horrific, and chloroform is even more wonderful and even more horrific. Um, so again, people realized that, that these were incredibly potent drugs. And this is Dr. Catherine McGoldrick again. Chloroform held a great deal of promise as an alternative to ether. But Simpson missed one crucial thing about this drug in his rush to find a new and supposedly better option for anesthesia. It was such an incredibly uh, um, dangerous drug to use. And one of the problems with it was, which was not known at the time, was that what it did in the heart, it it set up a, a person's heart to become arrhythmogenic, in other words, to fibrillate and uh, cause a cardiac arrest as we would understand it now. And this is one of the problems with anesthetic agents, that anesthetic agents, volatile anesthetic agents, set up the heart for this fibrillation when there is a flood of catecholamines, epinephrine, noradrenaline in your body. Sadly, this is where Hannah Greener enters the story. Yeah, so Hannah Greener was particularly nervous about this next anesthetic. Uh, she had an anesthetic with ether about uh, a month ago, but she puked so much that she was terrified and worried about giving, giving the next anesthetic. But she needed this surgery because, of course, she had a septic toe. Of course, Megasin turned to chloroform for Greener's second operation with disastrous results. And when Greener's condition started to worsen, Megasin had limited knowledge and options to reverse course. And what Megasin couldn't have known at the time was exactly what had occurred in Greener's body when she inhaled the chloroform. When the anesthetic was given, not sufficient was given. And so she was light. And then when they made the surgical incision, a flood of catecholamines caused her heart to fibrillate. And that's why she died. But this would only be worked out 70 years later in animal experiments. The early days of anesthesia were full of trial and error, often at the expense of the patient, precisely because early anesthetists didn't know how much of an effect drugs like chloroform and ether had on the brain and body. So ether uh, does not work very differently from sevoflurane today. So they're not, they're not different. Um, except that sevoflurane is safer because it doesn't have as many side effects. But their mechanism of action is very likely to be very, very, very similar. All of those volatile anesthetics have similar effects. They just don't have the same toxic effects, you know. In the beginning of anesthesia care, the anesthetists knew these drugs had the desired effect. They even learned quickly how deadly these drugs could be. But as we revisit those events in the 1840s, the real story is identifying just how much they didn't know and appreciating how far we have come in the last 175 years. Simpson, Megason, and especially Greener were living in the earliest days of anesthesia discovery and they were experimenting with brand new drugs that few people had encountered before them. Drugs that had undergone minimal research and testing prior to being deployed in surgeries around the world. Yet, 
What started as the simple practice of applying a little ether or chlory on a handkerchief has since become a robust and critical specialty in modern medicine. It's gone from a one-off to being an absolutely fundamental element of our modern medical system. This is Dr. Beverly Orser again. Safe anesthesia is the foundation of the current surgical era. You can't have complex, lengthy surgeries without a safe anesthetic state. And so, you know, it's gone from, uh, you know, being practiced in, in the home, ether anesthesia on the kitchen table, you know, to being an absolute essential element in our modern medical systems. Uh, along with the development of drugs was um, physicians who were well-trained to, to administer these drugs and the infrastructure and the safety systems that have grown up around them to ensure that we can manage high volume, high turnover uh, caseloads safely with the drugs that we have in hand. The change has been astonishing and dramatic. From that deadly operation on Greener's toe to the complex hours-long surgeries that are frequently performed today. And the key to this incredible evolution has been the added depth and breadth of our knowledge of anesthesia as a medical practice and as a biological and chemical tool. But then the question of when you give a drug and you see a behavioral change, like, like someone becomes unconscious. This is Dr. Emery Brown again. How did the drug do that? So trying to answer a specific question like that, where did it act in the brain of the central nervous system to somehow alter brain dynamics to generate a state of unconsciousness? And so that's the type of thing that we've been working on. And we've been doing this with models using humans, human studies, non-human primates, rodents, as well as mathematical modeling. We have made major leaps in understanding more about these drugs, both clinically and scientifically. The nuances in understanding how chloroform affected Grainer was likely lost on Megacin during that fateful surgery, and many thousands of surgeries after that. Even now, we are still unlocking the true mechanisms of anesthetic drugs in the brain. Yeah, and I think there's one important point that I want to make in terms of thinking about the anesthetics currently, and that is, you know, you know, one kind of um, sort of back of the envelope way to summarize how to think about them. As I said, you know, the our brain oscillations are part of the mechanism that is that are used to control communication in the brain, and they're basically currents. They're currents that are generated because the brain is is this huge electro, electrochemical process, and when um, when these oscillations are within a certain range, they allow us to, the parts of our brain to communicate and carry out the normal functions that we typically do. Ether and chloroform were products of their time in many ways. Research was conducted in bespoke ways that meant that any insights would require an animal subject or, in the best of cases, a mostly willing person to help prove any hypothesis. In the case of these anesthetic drugs, those early researchers were fine practicing on themselves before putting them directly into clinical practice. These empirical studies were the only real way to advance the field of surgery at the time, though. We are obviously not so limited today. We, we begin from two things. So one is the 
empirical observations of what we see the drugs doing when we measure the EEG on patients in the operating room. All right, so you know, I, you know, a patient's going under anesthesia and you see them, you administer the drugs and you see how their EEG changes. And what happens is for a given drug, let's say like propofol, you see the same dynamics each time, the same EEG changes. They vary a bit with age, they vary a bit with dose, but you, for, for this part of the conversation, let's see, you see, you see the same phenomenology. And then knowing how propofol acts, we know what the targets are that it binds to GABA-A receptors. We can draw out the anatomy of the brain and the central nervous system and say, where are those receptors and what are the, and how are the parts of the brain where it's acting, how are they connected? So right there you have phenomenology, you have knowledge of neuroanatomy and physiology. And so the question is, how can you start putting those together? So those are, those create very, very strong constraints on the, the problem and actually give you a lot of insight into how the drugs are working. Modern anesthesia research can approach these questions in multiple ways. Now, there are many options available to investigate drugs and their effects in the brain. Options that the early pioneers didn't have, which allow us to find mechanisms that Simpson and Morton could likely never have imagined. And, and I think one of the more recent observations was that the commonly used drugs we use every day have actions that persist long after they're eliminated. Now that that kind of seems intuitive and obvious that you know these very powerful drugs would have a hangover effect. But for 30 years, uh, myself and my colleagues, we, we practiced with the notion that once the drugs were eliminated, the brain went back to baseline state. We understand that's not the case now. And that, and that there are, long, there are longer-term consequences of drug exposure. And it's possible that, that that persistent effect may be contributing to some of the disorders we see in cognitive performance after surgery. For example, we know that patients do experience um, changes from baseline in terms of their acuity, attention, uh, to, their ability to, to focus, attention, even, even hallucinations and, and delirium. So, so that was really interesting that, that the commonly used drugs did have a hangover effect. Identifying this hangover effect has allowed us to target these issues for further research. It has also allowed us, crucially, to implement better clinical practices. Instead of merely worrying about a patient feeling pain during surgery, we can now focus on brain health after surgery. We have brain health initiatives to encourage more awareness around a person's health beyond the surgical outcomes. And those recent advances are leading to major improvements in overall patient experience with anesthesia care. And that's not even the only place this research is improving experiences for patients. With a, a really important discovery that, that psychiatrists made about ketamine. So they learned that ketamine has antidepressant actions. And that was um, totally unexpected. And and it's a very important observation because our, our treatments for, for depression are very limited and they often um, require a long time to be effective in the time course of weeks. And ketamine was found to be a rapid active antidepressant and that's really helped the psychiatrists their armamentarium drugs. But in terms of the conversation we're having today, that points to the notion that the drugs, the ketamine, which is an anesthetic, has longer term effects that last beyond the time course of the drug in the body. 
About 20 years ago, researchers found that anesthetic drugs have a hangover effect on patients. And that discovery, much like Morton's discovery of the use of ether, has led to far more advancement in the field in recent years. Okay, so way back when, um, we were studying the properties, the pharmacologic properties of a certain population of inhibitory receptors. So one of the way these drugs work is they increase inhibition in the brain by targeting the major inhibitory receptor, the GABA receptor. And we were trying to do detailed studies about how the drugs were changing the, the um, activity profile of these receptors. And we kept having this annoying noise in the background, this, this current, this leak current that was contaminating our records. We couldn't, we couldn't um, get high quality recordings and it wouldn't go away. And that's when we said, wait a minute, well, what is that noise? And it turned out that noise was a whole new population of anesthetic receptors that were being activated at low concentrations. And they were very unique. They had a very different pharmacology and they were highly sensitive to anesthetic drugs. And we identified a whole new population of GABA receptors as anesthetic targets. And then we discovered that they have a different subunit composition, different pharmacology. And that discovery actually let us gain a better understanding that all those different behavioral endpoints are mediated by distinct receptor populations, distinct brain regions, because this particular receptor was very important for the memory blocking properties, not so much for immobilization. And so we can start to dissect out the various behavioral components and see that there are different populations that, that contribute to those behaviors. So that was that was another aha, that this particular receptor had a, a distinct role within that constellation of behaviors, which we call the anesthetic state. These are studies that the founders of anesthesia use would not have dreamed of running. And they represent something truly remarkable about this specialty and these fields of research. We have been using empirical data, sometimes exclusively, to drive innovation in anesthesiology. But new findings like these GABA-A receptors are opening up whole new ideas about the kinds of drugs we can use to elicit the perfect effects in the brain for a specific patient. Where Morton and Simpson were using trial and error by sniffing vapors and observing the results, modern-day researchers like Dr. Orser and Dr. Brown are finding the receptors in the brain first and developing a knowledge base on how to target them specifically. It's honestly hard to articulate just how much distance exists between those two concepts. And of course, that's not where it stops. Researchers are also mapping the human brain in ways that could completely alter how we approach targeting those receptors altogether. We knew that the drugs were causing this um, persistent effect, and we tried to replicate it in, in the cell dish so that we could start to tease apart the mechanisms. We couldn't replicate it in neurons, and we tried and tried until until we realized, well, duh, neurons don't live alone. They live with glial cells in the brain. And then we started co-culturing with the neurons and glia and discovered that we could replicate. And we've since learned, and this is one of our ahas, is the importance of glia, which are the predominant cell in the brain, previously thought to be the glue or the, uh, you know, the scaffolding. But we understand they play a very important biologic role now, but they're also important for anesthetic effects. The, the idea that glia were necessary to um, drive this persistent effect was an aha. And that's led us to, um, you know, you start pulling the thread, that's led us to think, okay, what other role do glia play, given they're the predominant cell 
in um, uh, not only the persistent effects of the drugs, but the acute effects of the drugs. These advances are just starting to make it into everyday clinical use around the country, benefiting patients and all of the anesthesia providers using these tools. Tools that were initially developed some 175 years ago. And just as Dr. Orser said in episode one, these drugs still aren't good enough. The researchers today, much like those researchers in the earliest years of anesthesia use, are preparing us for major developments and improvements in the practice of anesthesiology and medicine as a whole. Understanding how the current drugs are working, I think is important because I think it's important for us to move away from empirical practices and sort of back black box thinking. I think the next thing is trying to develop, you know, more targeted approaches. You know, you have side effects from anesthesia, nausea, vomiting, poor pain control, or, you know, cognitive dysfunction because the drugs are acting in places where they're, they're not supposed to act. So if I could have an approaches which would just turn off very specific parts of the brain, we could turn them back on, that would be much more, that would be much more desirable. Chloroform continued to be used widely even after the death of Greener. Many anesthesia providers preferred its benefits over ether, but patient deaths continued to rise along with its popularity. After Greener's death, surgeons continued to use chloroform with disastrous results. In fact, 15 years later, in 1863, 123 patients would be pronounced dead due to the use of chloroform anesthesia. Efforts were made to reverse this trend without success. In England, several decades later, in 1909, the number of deaths from chloroform would be greater than the number of murders. The potency of chloroform was a double-edged blade. Simpson championed the compound for its efficacy in inducing anesthesia quickly, and it was quickly adopted by surgeons and anesthetists all across England. One doctor took a particular interest in this alternative to ether, though. His name was John Snow. Snow was a doctor, a scientist, and a leader in the field of medicine. He grew up in York, England, and pursued the study of medicine in a number of areas. He was also a skilled and innovative epidemiologist. In fact, during the 1854 outbreak of cholera in London, he is credited with developing a key contribution to halting the spread of the disease. Snow was a true scientist and physician, and he dedicated his life to several important subjects. One of the most important was the practice of anesthesiology. When it came to anesthetic agents, Snow seemed to understand how much he didn't know. He appreciated that chloroform was a better choice than ether, but only when used in a very particular fashion. His approach to anesthesia, especially with chloroform, was likely as important for the history of medicine and anesthesiology as the discoveries of nitrous oxide, ether, and chloroform. Snow's scientific and clinical work as an anesthetist would prove to be one of the key turning points in the history of the specialty. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with episode 3 on November 2nd to dive into the legacy of Jon Snow. If you are enjoying this season of The Aetherist so far, 
please consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. And if you really like what you're hearing, please share us with your colleagues too. We would really appreciate it. This season of The Etherist was created by me, Michael DePoe Wilson, along with James Pruden, our editorial director. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music comes from Blue Dot Studios. A special thank you to our wonderful voice actors, Craig Wilson and Martin Barbieri. The rest of our team includes Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, Christian Jana Cohen, Sam Steinfeld, and Lucia Scanlon, who all contributed greatly to the making of the Etherist. And a special thank you to our sponsors, Massimo and Medtronic. Thanks for listening.